recording. Oh God, John, did you look at the duck? There's no time. There's Welcome, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome everybody to Tracking That Axe, a podcast dedicated to strengthening your skills as a guitar player. And I, I got to say, this is, a, this is a good one, John. This is a very special episode we have ahead of us. Yeah, I'm super excited. I can't believe our special guest has yes. uh, chosen to join us on this episode. So Yeah, absolutely. As folks can probably guess, because we're probably going to make it the title, we have uh, Jens Larsen as our uh, YouTube guitarist extraordinaire, uh, teacher, musician, uh, just jazz nut uh, yeah. on, on our podcast, John. Living jazz encyclopedia. That's <laughs> It's insane. Like, I don't know. I don't know that much about anything maybe some seasons four to five of the simpsons and that's about it <laughs> uh, yeah that's impressive i don't know if i can boast that knowledge with anything so it's 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 a it's a real it's a real thing before we start i'd like to take on two issues john you said that uh you sent to me in facebook messenger that somebody complained some listener hello listeners old and new uh, <laughs> that the man in the box by allison chains why didn't we mention that in our wah overview yeah yeah and your response to that it's a talk box it's the now that said i went back and listened to today and it is uh it is indeed a wah pedal on the solo it's Mm. a killer solo yeah absolutely you know what's interesting so i also did a bit of research on this Mm -hmm. um and performing it live in the early 90s there's several videos you can find them on youtube particularly from 91, right after uh, the album was released. Yeah. Not using a talk box, talk box live. He's using a wah. So ah. I don't know what the deal is with that. But I, Well, you know, he has his own signature wah. Oh, uh, I don't yeah. think he did in 1991. But no, very few did. Yeah. And then, then Slash became a brand and everything happened. Joe Bonamassa a... probably did. <laughs> uh, yeah, he'll put his name on... And um, if he, be, you know, he's I, I, think got he, I think he's going back in time to put his name on more stuff. I think <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not called an aeroplane. It's called a Banamasa plane and <laughs> back in time and put, pay the Wright brothers money. Going, going way tangent, tangenting. John, we should give the listeners a bit of, uh, you know, info that we are in week last week of our uh, thesis. Oh, and, Dear Lord. Uh, I, I am currently functioning on this lovely sipping cup of uh, petrol station coffee to record this episode. Uh, I'm on, I don't know. I've, I'm, I'm living off of coffee and rockstar energy drinks. That's, yeah. that's a plug for rockstar energy drink, by the way. Like if you want to <laughs> give us a sponsorship, because I have given you so much money in the last two weeks. Yeah, uh, we will not bow to any sponsor. Uh, <laughs> Also, I would like to give a shout out to my uh, new, but also very good friend in that he's a good friend and a good person, Mac and Carol. Uh, he recently had me on his podcast uh, called Happy Sad Talk Thing, which is uh, <laughs> uh, he's a cool guy. He studies songwriting in, <clears throat> in UCLA, I believe, and he's got a lot of good insight in music. But we talked about this podcast and music in general on his uh, latest, the latest episode of his podcast. So crossover, synergy, it's the future, branding, yeah. buzzword. Right. We'll, we'll link him in the show notes. Absolutely. So, so yes. So, John, do you have my uh, lick of the week? Because uh, I got to admit, friends, this is a very Dylan-heavy episode. Not only am I taking on this segment, but also the next segment as well. Mm, so, uh, I do have here the lick of the week. So, okay. Dylan has very graciously 
doing this help me uh, finish up my own thesis here. But here we go. Here's the lick of the week. <laughs> okay. Right? Oh, man. Um, geez. I want to listen to it again, but... Uh, <laughs> One listen, John. Them's the rules. That's, that's it. That's it. Oh, um, it has that like big, heavy, uh, Les Paul 70s sound. Very good. Very, very close. Yes, which, very good. Which would lead me to sort of veer towards Led Zeppelin, but to be honest, I can't place it. So, Okay, so we've got two guitars there. They're both Les Paul's. Uh, two guitars. Let's see. Um, so it wouldn't be the viewers are screaming at you right oh, now. Oh, I know. Come on, <laughs> come on. Um, oh, I'm I'm gonna have to. Okay, I'm, that's all right. We're both very tired. I'll put you yeah, out of misery. That was uh, Emerald from the album Jailbreak by Thin Lizzy. Oh, jeez. Well, at least all the Irish viewers are listeners. So, yeah. Explain the importance of Thin Lizzy to oh, God. over here who know like, you know, two songs by Thin Lizzy. So uh, incredibly influential Irish band from the, the 70s and 80s uh, fronted by the very charismatic Phil Linnett, uh, uh, just a complete rock star. So I read an article about how Thin Lizzy were the essential cock rock band of the uh, 70s and 80s. And that is uh, that kind of sums up their type of music. But it's big, it's riff heavy, and it basically, along with uh, Judas Priest, really started the whole dual guitar thing. Um, and Tim Lizzy are massive influences on Metallica, along with another mm -hmm. number of other bands, uh, as you can see on their cover of "Whiskey in the Jar." But this is one of my favorite uh, Lizzy songs, particularly if you can listen to the uh, live and dangerous version. It opens with Phil saying the line while well, asking the crowd. Uh, is there anybody in the crowd with little Irish in them? And the crowd goes, woo! And then Phil says, are there any of the girls who'd like a little bit more Irish in them? <laughs> I'm pretty sure is Dang. paraphrasing a line from Austin Powers. Um, but, you know, <laughs> great riff, great band. Check them out if you don't know them already. Uh, so now we're going on to, before our uh, interview with the very esteemed Jens Larson, we uh, have a new segment as part of Pedal Talk, we're going to try this one out, see how it goes down. Uh, so I, I came up with the idea. What you think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, write, tweet, send us uh, dick pics, Snapchats, the whole thing. Uh, you know, whatever means of communication you use. Uh, but I thought we should use maybe once a month to talk about not only pedals, but how certain guitarists use pedals. Um, so I thought we could go through a various different bands and this month to start us off once again Dylan heavy episode uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, how Kurt Cobain uses pedals now the reason I have chosen Kurt Cobain is because I did not know what a guitar pedal did until Nirvana uh, they have possibly the biggest use of a guitar pedal ever uh, in Smells Like Teen Spirit when it starts off with the clean guitar and then goes in to the distortion agreed agreed Yes, okay, when, good. When is that? Do you know what he switches on there? Uh, which pedal? Yeah. That is a Boss DS1, my friend. There you go. Wow. Yeah. 
Okay, so I've got a list of pedals here. I'm going to talk a little bit how he uses them. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to pick Kurt Cobain as well is because he doesn't use pedals that much, but when he does, I think he uses them quite well. They're very distinctive in tone. So as I said, he uses the Boss DS1 distortion. Uh, he, because Boss were owned by Roland, I think, are they still owned by Roland? As far as I know, yeah. Yeah, he, he, never, he never knew they were, he refer, constantly refers to them as uh, Roland pedals in interviews. I'm getting a lot of this information from um, a website I found that is just about Kurt Cobain's guitar gear called KurtzGear.com. Wow. Because of course that exists. Anyway, <laughs> the uh, internet is a fascinating and dangerous place. But yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a deep hole. Uh, don't get sucked in. Uh, so yeah, the DS1 is basically, he considered it his kind of, almost signature pedal because he used it on everything. Recordings, touring. I think one of the reasons that it appealed to him so much was that he, uh, that was so versatile, well not versatile, uh, durable I suppose is the word we'd use. He would stamp on it and it would never break. So, and also later on in shows, he actually, when grunge actually became, you know, a buzzword and a brand, he actually bought a pedal that was just called the grunge pedal because apparently it made that sound huh. and you uses it in the live and loud uh performance and then just throws it into the crowd <laughs> uh, ouch yeah but anyway he uh later upgraded to the ds2 mm. um which is you know a bit more a bit more versatile uh, but a really interesting use of this is unplugged in new york uh on, yeah which i think is a great tone really really oh, nice yeah. the uh, uh, you know, he, it's Nirvana, but it's never, so it's never going to be really unplugged. But I really, I, I remember hearing that Man Who Sold the World tone and just, it's really, really nice coming through an acoustic guitar. Uh, of course, when you think of Nirvana, you think of Overdrive. So for the song Lithium, a uh, fan favorite, one of my personal favorites with its one word course, uh, he used the Electroharmonics Big Muff, right. which is uh, a massive grunge sound, Mud Honey, Soundgarden. They all use Big Muffs. Uh, really, really great. Now, was this the original Big Muff or was that the, the what was it the Soviet one? Do you know? Uh, I think it's the original. I'm okay. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about this. I'm sure it'd be very easy to find out. Uh, he really seemed to like electroharmonic stuff. He also went, used uh, for, we all know that opening intro to Come As You Are, which I believe is ripped off from a Killing Joke song. Uh, but that sound is actually the small clone chorus, which he, he really, really liked. Ah. And, and we all know, you know, we have very mixed feelings about chorus, as we've discussed on the show before. But uh, I think it's a really, really good use. Uh, he also uses it on the hello, hello pre-chorus section of Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it pops up all over the recordings. He uses it just the right way, never overloads it like some chorus users. Andy Summers, joking. Um, <laughs> I'd say that. He also used. I remember um, my favorite Nirvana album is In Utero. I think it's it's just really really good and really raw. And Steve Albini did such a good job producing it. Mm. Uh, so uh, I, I remember there's songs like Scentless Apprentice and Unit Friendly Unit, uh, Unit Friendly Shifter, Radio Shifter, and uh, just the the mad sounds he gets out of it. And that's he uses Electroharmonics Polychorus. Have you ever heard of that? No, I'm not familiar with the Polychorus. Yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. Just really kind of darkly shimmering. Uh, he also used it for the heart-shaped box solo, which is, I think, a really, really cool kind of, uh, you know, it's Kurt Cobain, so it's going to be hummable, but the tone is really, really sweet. 
And uh, one more pedal that he also was known for using was the Tech 21 Sans Amp Classic, which was basically an amp recreating pedal. Uh, he used it for his touring overdrive. And if you ever watch any live shows, he does have a really good live sound. Uh, when you think of grunge, you don't think of the, you know, the, the nicest sound. But through those Fender Jaguars and Mustangs, uh, he really, really used pedals really well, I think. Huge, huge. He also had people to tell him what to do, like Butch Vig and Steve Albini, who really helped him like, form his sound. That's interesting. So, John, you might do the next how blank guitarist uses pedals. Have you anyone in mind? Oh, I'll just do Steve Vai. <laughs> I almost spat out my petrol station coffee. Uh, yeah, podcast just, is over. just for you. That's it. That's it. Oh. He, he did, he's got his big horsey signature, or bad horsey signature law. That's all he and uses, I, I think. I think that's it. I, you, you've seen that, um, <laughs> that uh, boss sponsored video where he talks you through almost every boss pedal it takes like 90 minutes oh seriously no I yeah he, oh like God. three overdrives at the start and ridiculous. yeah i just watched it because i want to see his massive hands <laughs> freakishly huge hands freakishly like spiders huge. crawling all over the fretboard it's ridiculous Spiders and sausages having babies, and they became Steve. <laughs> um, but I digress. Uh, friends, we have an absolutely tremendous guest on. So lucky to have him, and he provides some really, really nice insight uh, into his world, the jazz world, what he teaches, what he does, and how we can improve as players. Uh, what did you make of this interview, John? Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, some helpful tips and hints and. Uh, Jens was just a fantastic human being. Just really nice, really pleasant to have. Um, can't say enough good things about him. Definitely check out some of his, his videos. Um, he's got them all linked on his Twitter page and everything else. We'll throw a few links in there in the show notes as well. So anyway, your thoughts, Dylan? Did you oh, yeah, no, up I, I, I really, really enjoyed uh, talking to him. I've used his, as you mentioned in the podcast, I've used his uh, Ultimate Jazz Guitar Bootcamp uh, PDF of like printout of jazz chords, yeah. basically like a cheat sheet. So without further ado, people, our interview with Jens Larson. Okay, Jens Larson, real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. And yeah, we're really excited to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. So for starters, could you tell uh, our audience here a little bit about what you do? Because you do a lot. So um, Well, I think, I mean, what you guys know me from is, of course, the, the YouTube channel. So that's, that's mm. what, I, what I think what most people know me from. Um, for the rest, I'm, I'm a guitar player. I'm actually a Danish guitar player, but I live in Holland. Okay, cool. Okay. Where I'm, I'm, I was uh, trained. So I, I have a master's in, in jazz guitar from the conservatory here in, uh, <clears throat> here in The Hague where I also teach now. And um, f a few years ago, um, before I started working at the conservatory, I, um, I felt like I was only teaching people how to play uh, Coldplay and Metallica. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, that, that was fun. But besides just playing jazz gigs and stuff, it was nice to do something else once in a while as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I decided to, do, um, to start doing some lessons um, and it, uh, basically just some lessons that I, like articles and blog posts that I wrote on my website because I've noticed that people would find stuff on, on, on the internet if I put it on my website once in a while. And um, then I started posting them on, uh, on this website called Ultimate Guitar. Ah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there I actually got to know quite a few people that also do a lot of YouTube. So you mentioned uh, Chris Super. 
That's mm -hmm. where I met him. Or, well, I met him, but online. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same thing. Because uh, he lives in Australia, so. Uh, and also uh, Ben Eller. Uh, so there, mm -hmm. there are a few people that I know from that period. Um, and then um, Chris actually convinced me that I should do YouTube lessons. Oh, okay. The only thing that works, really. So, um, and then I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll take my old Samsung phone and uh, make some YouTube videos. So, uh, the, for, to keep it uh, maybe a bit short, so that's, uh, that's the, the story of how I started. And uh, now, um, besides playing uh, guitar here in, in Holland and whatever, wherever they let me, um, I make uh, YouTube lessons. I'm, I make a weekly YouTube lesson on Thursdays, and then I have um, something else happening on Mondays on my channel. And it's it's varies a bit. It's a little bit more theory and some longer things. Mm -hmm. And then maybe that's gonna expand later this year because I quit one of my teaching jobs. So now I'm at more time. <laughs> oh, nice. Now you do oh, also important. have, uh, you, you do online lessons, um, like one-on-one -on -one lessons to like a Skype lesson as well, right? I do that a bit, yeah, but I, I, don't, I don't really have time to do that. So I kind of have to choose. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like that. I really do like the, to make the YouTube lessons and, and that's kind of fun. So uh, I've kept at that because I also teach, um, like I, t I was teaching in a, in a music school and, um, and I teach at a conservatory and those are one-on-one -on -one lessons. So, um, so I don't do that too much, but I, I mean, you can get a hold of me, but, but I don't have any sort of steady students. Okay. Um, Dylan, you have- Jens, I, I have a question just um, about students making the transition from Coldplay to, to jazz. Do you think that there is a real, a sense of kind of fear? Cause jazz is kind of a, a scary word for, guitar students I find anyway um, I don't know I mean but I, I think I don't know how many how people get into jazz really um, because I think that's different from a lot of people I think a lot of people because you said like you were going back to music school and then suddenly you found yourself in an ensemble and then you had to play jazz yeah and I think that's the intro a lot of people have to it actually mm. um, well then you don't have to worry about anything it's like you just get the sheet music and then it's like okay now I have to figure this out. I kind of remember having to do that in high school as well. So um, I think that there's not really necessarily any fear. I, I, yeah, I don't, I think it's about being exposed to it really in some form or way. And in, in jazz, it's maybe because it doesn't really reach a lot of people on, on media. It, it's, you get exposed to it by being put in situations where, where it is, because it's much more of a live uh, art form, I guess. Mm. Yeah, hugely. So much more expressive than with 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 the chord shapes and the the kind of the, the altered scale and everything. There's just so much more, I don't know, room to breathe than you know. I don't know. A lot of modern rock music is really just kind of you know you've got the blues scale and you've got the minor pentatonic, but it's it's very very confined. And jazz is just such an open thing. Yeah, but I think it's only open because the whole design of the music is of course based around the fact that you that everybody is really improvising all the time. So um, when you're playing behind somebody, you're improvising and you're supposed to react to what they're doing. Uh, and that's definitely not the case in, in, most, um, in, in most rock music, but it never really was. I mean, I think people would uh, walk out if David Gilmore played another solo on another Bring the Wall. Yeah. You know? <laughs> play that solo and people expect it and fair enough, you know. But that's, that's how it is. That's a different kind of music. I think improvisation is, is such a key to what you were saying. And I'm curious from your standpoint, when someone's just getting into it, what do you think are the things that they really need to be aware of when they're jumping into 
an improvisatory situation? Well, I mean, I think you can get into it on all levels. Actually, I think a lot of people, uh, especially if you already play guitar for, for some time, then um, you might think, overthink what's going on and you think like, okay, I need to know all the scales in all positions and the altered in the second inversion with the third in <laughs> the bass and something, you know? And it's, it's really, it's, it's much more simple if you just think of it as being, well, I just have to play while the people have to listen to what's going on and, um, and then start with that. I mean, you can play, there are a lot of jazz songs you can play with one scale. There are a lot of jazz songs that you can play with, with one pentatonic scale. <laughs> yeah, it's also why I, how I teach it and also why, what I would suggest you do because um, I think a lot of people get stuck in wanting to do too much with that. It, it, you can easily take, but I think that probably also goes for a lot of showers, really. But I mean, you can you can get lost in all the all the specifics that you have to learn, and, and, and you don't really need to. It's about making music, and also uh, the thing that really is important about jazz is you have to play with other people. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious. Then you you mentioned it's easy to get lost in the specifics uh that said you do have a lot of videos that are very specific um <laughs> and and one of the ones you know uh that i've mentioned before is is your stuff on the altered scale and the stuff uh on bebop exercises as well those are pretty specific how do you transition from those specifics to your modal scales your different arpeggios um and then sort of let that go in that improvisatory situation? Well, I think with, with anything you have to learn, you probably have to sort of stay with it. And I, th I think the, the thing that everybody forgets is that um, in order to play the blues, you have to sit around for two and a half years on your own, messing about and sounding <laughs> like crap with a pentatonic scale in that one, one A-shaped position in the fifth fret. And, oh, yeah. and we all do that and, and it's fine. And then, um, and then we look at Pepinsini and he's playing all the things you are and, and just I heard some interview where he was asked why how do you how do you get so free when you're playing all the things you are because it sounds like I'm playing like if I'm playing a blues knee but if I have to play something like that I can't be that free and he was just saying well that's just because I practiced it so much that I'm that free uh, so so there is that aspect to it of course mm. you, you do need to really give yourself the time and because you're so used to the stuff we learn early we don't think about when we're using it. Mm -hmm. you know, we don't. We learn to play stuff uh, in in a maybe I don't know not, maybe not everybody, but you learn to play stuff in a pentatonic scale, and you're not aware of um, what you're what you're playing, but you you just listen to it and think think of uh, think about whether it sounds good. And um, yeah, as soon as you start playing something with more changes in it, then um, then you actually have to think and you have to spend the time getting all the habits of playing along with the chords. Uh, and in that way, sort of find your way in the music. And that is just something that's, it's not actually difficult, but it does take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. you know, you, yeah. You work and for the rest of you can probably teach a monkey to do so. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't try, but I mean. I... And I, I have a question just about, about practice routines. Uh, yeah. uh, what a big thing, a big part of our uh, kind of, a message you try to get across is developing your own sense of practice routine and you know what to include and what not to spend too much time on and it really depends on the individual player but is there anything that you keep in your practice routine or do you have one do you have yeah no, I, I definitely have a routine i mean i think also um, um especially because 
I, I work a lot and I have a family and I have kids and stuff, so I don't have a lot of time to practice really. Mm. So that means that I need to have sort of an efficient practice routine. So if I do that, then I kind of have an idea of like, okay, now I've done the bare minimum of what I need to do uh, for today. And then, then I don't have to feel guilty about it. So, <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's kind of how it is. So, um, so I do have that. And it, a lot of it is really, um, really just, just basic technique stuff. The, the thing that I find is important for me, because if, you, if you're improvising, uh, you kind of need to work towards a technique that helps you play whatever you can think of. Yeah. Or whatever you can hear or however you want to sort of think about that. And um, that means that it's important that when you have your exercises, that, you, that if you practice scales, that you, um, you keep challenging yourself, really. And that you keep trying new things out and uh, uh, sort of finding new ways of playing the same things and stuff. And that, that's a huge component in what I do. So I will play, um, a part of my practice routine would be to play through all 12 keys. I don't really play in position anymore. I just sort of play from, from low to high. Yeah. And then I'll take, for each key, I'll just take some exercise and then go through it, find, try and see if I can find a new fingering or something like that. Not really, really focusing more about the fact that I have, because like playing diatonic triads in a scale is a melodic idea. And what I want to practice is that I can take my melodic ideas and uh, take them through a change, a tune with a lot of changes. So also if I take a scale and I say, my, well, my triads are a melodic idea, and I'll try and take that through the positions along the neck and see them and have an overview and be able to play that in time. That is also helping not only technique, but also just overview and, and the idea that you're hearing something and, and getting it to be a bit more music. Mm. So that I think is sort of a component that it's kind of hard to explain it, but it, it is, that's something I think is important to sort of having your playing. Yeah, absolutely. So keeping, keeping your practice musical, <laughs> that's keeping your practice musical, but also keeping it, keep it, but keep challenging yourself, keep yourself thinking mm. and hearing and don't, uh, and not stuck in, in, uh, in too repetitive, really. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's important. For the rest you do that, I mean, I do that and then for the rest I'm just playing, I'll take some tune and play it, really. That's also a huge part of what I do when I practice, I just play songs. Oh, that's great. That's a really, really good, really fresh kind of, ass, you know, uh, attitude yeah, towards I, it. I think it's easy, particularly when you have a routine, to slip into just kind of the mechanical practice of it. So I think that's all of that's like really good advice to take on, play a tune, find a way to challenge yourself and, and keeping it musical. I think those are, those are some excellent points. I think, yeah, I, th I think it works well. For, and also if you, if you see how people, I mean, I've, I've also watched videos of people that I, that I look up to uh, or look to for inspiration or like Benazzini or Greg Rosenwinkel or Schofield, and they talk about how they practice. This is what we're doing for most of the time, you know? Mm. So, yeah, I think, I think there's something to always try and keep moving indeed, and, and come up with new things to practice. Kind of uh, in tandem to that as, as well, to Dylan's question anyway. Um, like you said, you're a busy guy. You've got a family. You create a lot of contents. How do you find the time to practice? Like, where do you fit that into your day? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, <laughs> when students didn't show up. <laughs> I see. You guys will, will teach, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 
I thought I heard something like that on one of the other podcasts. So, so yeah, so that, that was a, that's a huge factor, actually. Uh, it used to be. It's not so much anymore because right now I don't have as many students and they show up. So that's... They can actually play jazz. So that's kind of good. But um, I, I think I mostly practice... Um, well, actually, I practice whenever I have time. But yeah. it's mostly in the morning. Mm. So, so it's something I'll do, like, um, maybe I'll... Um, when I've sort of shipped off the kids to school or something, then it's, it's like, okay, uh, answer an email or two and then play guitar for half an hour and yeah. then do what I need to do, you know? Finding the time. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it, I mean, yeah, like, like that's the recurring thing that you guys talk about also. It is difficult to organize your day so that you have a steady time to practice, I find. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Also because yeah. some of the stuff that I do is... is um, it's sort of conflicting like i will do if i'm working if i'm playing somewhere it's very often like in the afternoon or in the evening except if i'm playing school concerts which i do really a lot but then i have to get up at five in the morning so yeah. it's, it's it's like yeah it's all over the place and you just need to sort of find small bits of pieces where we can do i think one thing with that is so if you have a practice routine you need to keep it compact you know you need to keep it small and so that you don't constantly think like oh i should have done two and a half hours and stuff like that. I don't think that really works for you, uh, for anybody. Yeah, you get past a certain age. Once you get past a certain age, you have responsibilities and you really have to kind of uh, plan what you're going to do and not do the A pentatonic box for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Just to ask, Jens, uh, we had Troy Grady on a few weeks ago and he has basically kind of built a living out of his uh, YouTube videos and they're, they're really, really good. But I was wondering, how, when you decided to make YouTube videos, how do you find the response has been since then? Has it encouraged you to kind of play more, explore more ideas or um, have you, has it been a, a really positive experience for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I made the lessons, I started making lessons because I, I just felt like make, teaching, like I had the idea that I knew all these things about jazz and I didn't really have anybody to really teach it. And then mm. I could just throw it on YouTube. And, um, and I have to say also, if I look, because if I look at Chris Supra and, and Ben Eller and, and what kind of response they sometimes get from, for their stuff, mm. I'm quite lucky uh, with that because I, I get almost only a positive response really. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's very rare that people get uh, get annoyed by what I say. Or, or yeah. I love Chris Zupa's approach to the negative comments. It's just <laughs> so quick, so sardonic. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it's 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 really refreshing. Uh, he's one of my favorites. Uh, as I said, I discovered you through his lessons, and yeah. yeah, it's great. Is there anybody else on YouTube that you have found that's kind of uh, maybe given you new a new perspective towards guitar, or is doing things that you find kind of exciting? Um, not so much. I mean, I found actually, I found like, like, because you guys already had Troy in there and I'm, I haven't followed very, um, sort of very accurately, but what he's doing, I did find it interesting. Like the first time I saw his video, I was thinking, wow, this is really taking it a bit far. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, and then, and then it was like, oh yeah, okay. Actually he kind of has a point because he started to explain like, uh, at some point when I was working really a lot on Olsen picking. Uh, I found that I that it helped a lot to do all these Steve Morse things that I found on, on the internet. 
Yeah. Um, and he actually did an interview with Steve Morse that's on, that's on YouTube also. Mm-hmm. So that I checked out and I thought that was, that was actually really interesting. So I had to conclude that when it actually interested me, what he was talking about, then it was fine. <laughs> so when he was saying the mom's thing, I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, uh, so yeah, so actually he, his way of thinking, that had made me think, I, I'm not sure if I can say that I really implemented any of the things that much. And for the rest, um, I haven't, um, I have bits and pieces, of course, that you find mostly what I have gone after are like the master classes. So there are some great yeah. master classes with uh, um, Gilad, Gilad Hexelman and uh, Julian mm-hmm. Large. And of course, um, there's, there's this one weird clip from Italy where Papancini is warming up, which is, has been very inspiring, I thought. Cool. Better check that out. Pardon me a second, gentlemen. I'll be right back. Yeah. So Jens, just just to uh, what do you find are the most as a teacher? Because John and I, John was actually the person that inspired me to start teaching guitar properly. Because mm-hmm. uh, I was kind of we were both getting frustrated that uh, we weren't playing enough. We were doing a, a master's in musicology, and when we both started teaching, and I was kind of nervous about breaking in. You know, you have this doubt that. You know, what if they want to learn something that I don't know? Um, do you find that the whole teaching experience has really helped you as a, as a player? Definitely. Actually, for me, um, I had this really weird experience that, that I, w- I spent um, six years in a conservatory only like checking out jazz. And, and, and also the conservatory that, that uh, I went to at the time was quite conservative. So it's really like bebop, hardbop, most of it. Yeah. Uh, so we didn't really listen to almost anything that was made after 1965 or something, you know, so, but you know, so we were really in that. And then I got a job through a drummer, a friend of mine, uh, teaching at, um, well, actually at the British school in, in, uh, here in in the Hague, because we have a lot of expats. And um, all of a sudden I found myself teaching or figuring out how to teach all this stuff that I actually didn't know anything about. Uh, especially like Metallica and uh, um, Pink Floyd. I think for a new song off I've listened to, but but there was all this this stuff that that uh, and especially the metal things I didn't know because I didn't I didn't I came from Hendrix and blues and stuff like that into jazz mm. and then I I didn't do anything else really. Um, but I found actually that that helped me a lot um, because I found some music that I really liked some of it like. Uh, um, and also just check out a lot of stuff, you know, if you have to sit down and, and figure out how to play uh, these solos uh, from, from, from metal guys, then, then it's, it's, that's interesting, you know? I mean, I, I guess I just like most things about guitar, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That, that, was, that was really cool. So I spent a lot of time doing that, and then, I mean, later, you kind of, you have, you've done that, and then, then it was a little bit less interesting, maybe. But, <laughs> But in the beginning, I really got a kick out of, of checking out, out all that and also checking out like, okay, um, how the hell am I going to figure out how to play Master of Puppets with all down picking and stuff like that. I was like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's crazy. So that, that was a lot of fun, actually. Cool. Um, we won't take, uh, keep you for much longer, but uh, I, I, have one, I have one question as still, like, still getting into jazz. Is there any jazz guitar album that you keep on going back to that would you say is your, your number one? For, for playing uh, yeah well I'm I have different things for that because 
um, and maybe there's also a little bit the teacher talking, <laughs> but uh, um, because I think one of the most difficult things to learn about jazz is actually to get the phrasing of the eight notes right. Mm. Okay. You learn the swing eight notes are triplet, and they're not. You know, if you play <laughs> if you play triplet eight notes, you you sound like crap. So um, you have to learn that, and the way the easiest way to learn that is really to just learn some solos and play along with the record because they play it right, and then hopefully you you start playing it right. That's how I learned it anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, so. Yeah, so Wes Montgomery smoking at the half note is like a good album to check out. I think I learned most of it at some point, or Great. Well, actually in one year. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that really helped. You know, that, that fixed a lot of problems for me. And I know from my students and from other people also that that's how that works. Uh, so, so for from that point of view, I would say smoking at the half note, Wes Montgomery is an album that's really important. Um, and then there's a more modern album because the first. Craig Rosenwinkel album uh, had a very big impact on me also. It's a trio album where he plays a lot of standards and there's a lot of things with using chords in your solo lines and stuff that was very influential for, for the way I play. Cool. Uh, John, have you any, any questions to ask before we let Jens get back to real life? <laughs> yeah, um, just uh, again, sort of for for people who are getting into jazz, um, I think a lot of people think that it's sort of, um, I, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but I, 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 should, I think it kind of has this reputation of like that's something that happened in the past. But right now you mentioned Jalad Hexelman, um, who's doing some really interesting things. Who else do you think is out there right now that's doing some, some cool stuff? Who else should we check out that maybe um, is not on everyone else's radar? Um, well, yeah, I think for me, in terms of just completely getting the whole guitar trio thing for, for jazz guitar, Gila is definitely the, the one that I like the, the best. Uh, Jonathan Kreisberg is a fantastic player. And um, of course, I mean, there are still a lot of people around that are really worthwhile checking out. Schofield has made yeah. two other records, and they're all different. Yeah. Now, and and, and uh, well, which I is. I buy everyone when it comes out. Stuff, so. What? I buy everyone when it comes out, so. Yeah, but you, know, you know what I mean. You know? Part of yeah. what, what makes him great is that he, he, does, he does different things. He always sounds like Schofield, but he does, it fits everywhere. It's amazing, yeah. you know? So, yeah, so, yeah. So, so those are actually the people that I go to for the most. Uh, Julian Lash, I like Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, so, yeah, so Gilad, Julian Lash. Um, and then, yeah, just like Rosenwinkel, Frisell, Schofield, Pepinzini, yeah. those are the guys. Yeah, absolutely. As the non-jazz nerd of this conversation, I really have a lot of homework to do. <laughs> <laughs> really should have done that before. Uh, that's basically sorted me out for the rest of the year. Thanks, Jan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> great. Well, th- thank you so much for giving us your, your precious time. We know you're super busy, and we really appreciate it. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Before we go for the podcast, um, I've actually because since you asked me, I, I was listening to quite a few of them. I also heard the one with Troy, and, and um, it, it's I like the atmosphere that you guys have. It, it's it's like relaxed and funny and uh, not not too uh, uptight. But oh, well, 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 thank you very much. I'm blushing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, before you go, where can people find your stuff? I think um, probably my YouTube channel is the the one. So that's just uh, youtube.com/slash Jens Larsen. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a link. 
and otherwise uh, my website jenslarsen.nl great yeah we'll great. link all that in the show notes okay thanks, thanks so much <laughs> what a seamless transition back into <laughs> right, so friends we really hope you enjoyed that uh, please check out Jens's, uh his channel and his website really really good resources and so much stuff for free man such a such a decent thing to do yeah especially like like i said on his youtube channel there's just there's loads of stuff if you don't have something to be working on this week go check out his youtube channel like share subscribe all that fun stuff and uh, john what a seamless segue into what we've been working on exactly and what have you been working on Oh man, I'm carrying this episode. You're putting so much on me. I'm joking. (laughs) I'm trying to. (laughs) Because I've been uh, editing and uh, thesising in general, I actually took half an hour the other day and made a list of not stuff, you know, I'm learning, but stuff I really would like to learn when I do have more time uh, as of Friday, I suppose. So just made a list of solos. I was even toying with the idea of maybe uploading performances of me playing these solos on youtube just as a kind of a maybe setting myself a weekly goal of doing so i love that idea yeah i think setting yourself goals and deadlines for this kind of musical productivity i think it's a good way of doing it so yeah yeah, just basically making a list of solos not going to say what they are just in case people call me out on them have you had a moment to play guitar kind of um you know i i've i've had a few moments to sort of uh warm up um and stuff before i go through a lesson or you know someone's coming in with a song and i'm like okay i've got 10 minutes to try to learn it so that's kind of been my practice for the, <laughs> for the week Such um, a pro, John. yeah <laughs> um but it's uh, essentially just being able, being able to stay limber and just keep things going, which I think is important, particularly when, you know, uh, you're stressed out with deadlines and you've got a lot to do, just being able to pick it up and, and knock something out. I did actually for this, I had to transcribe a couple of uh, solos as well in various parts and work out some animals as leaders parts. And um, yeah, this, this guitarist named Yvette Young, if you don't know who she is, you should check her out. Um, she's amazing guitar player, which again, makes it really difficult to transcribe her, um, <laughs> her work. So that's, that's mostly what I've been working on. Um, yeah. And then what have you been listening to? Oh, John, I, well, as you may know, I've been doing a little bit of writing for pop matters, music blog. I'm just plugging myself like a freaking whore this week. Oh, and I'm jealous. No, no, no. Uh, so one of the, opportunities I had last week was to, uh, to interview Asa Brock and uh, after that after I think my, I've submitted my interview yesterday hopefully it'll all be on the website soon and uh, yeah he was you know he gave some really cool answers um, he's a very private guy mm. so you know I, I asked him about hip-hop he was listening to and he was like you know kind of humming and hawing about it but you know he's very very private but i i really liked his new uh film soundtrack for the film bushwick he composed it oh i didn't uh, know that yeah that was kind of the, what the interview was centering around so yeah really really cool i've also gone back and listened to his other albums none shall pass and labor days and they've been fueling me throughout the week for yeah for my time. uh how about you you've been listening to anything to take away your <laughs> news yeah um I've been listening to, there's a YouTube guy. So this week, he's been, <laughs> this is the guy you showed me. Yeah. Uh, Luigi, I'm going to totally mispronounce his 
last name um or leo i'm sorry no it's a leo oh gosh moraccioli or something like that right. more moraccioli that's what i'm going with anyway um but he did a cover recently like a metal cover of africa and that's what by toto and that's what caught my eye but he's done like beat it and he did feel good ink where he dresses up as like a bunny in this video and goes around to a shopping mall in Norway. Uh, and he plays where all he's the from. Instruments. Yeah, he plays all the instruments, so it's ridiculous. He gets people to come in and do guest spots and stuff. Um, and he collaborates with people like Rob Scallon and Jared Deans. And, oh, cool. Um, John, but, question. You might know yeah. this being the, the podcast resident at Toto Nut. Uh, why, why did, someone has to be someone has to be. Uh, why why did africa just come back like in the last 10 years it's had this real revival or did it ever go away i don't know to be honest um i feel like just kind of uh the the whole toto thing sort of resurfaced again um uh, now i've been a toto fan for a long time and sort of when toto was not popular <laughs> i was at least over here in the us i was still um, that's why you're the resident Toto not, man. Yeah, exactly. And Africa, interestingly enough, was actually written as a bit of a joke by David Paish. So, yeah, because at that time you had all these these white guys writing songs about Africa and they'd never been there. And so as a joke, while they were in the studio, David Paish was like, we should write a song by a bunch of white guys about Africa who've never been there. And that's exactly what they did. And it turned out to be a huge hit, which is pretty hilarious. But, you know... That's a very, um, I, I want to make a joke that's that lucrative. So, how do I do that, Dylan? How do I make a joke that lucrative? Just the right catchphrase and we'll make a fortune. Uh, as we are making a fortune from our podcasting. Uh, <laughs> what was friends, that catchphrase there, Dylan? Uh, anyway, <laughs> don't want to repeat it. So, uh, friends, when you hear us next week, we will be in much better spirits. We will be much more energetic. We will be much more full of life and love and compassion for others. But right now, we are not those people. We are, we are men on a deadline. So I, if you have listened to us all the way through this episode, I really appreciate it. Uh, we've given you some good things to go off, do some homework, listen to some Thin Lizzy. Yeah, massive thanks to Jens once again. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Yes. Love yourselves. Love each other. Stay sharp. Mwah.